Kia ora, ko Sarah Burgess tuku ingoa, he pohitori ki te Manatū Taonga. Hi there, I'm Sarah Burgess, a historian at Manatū Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. Welcome to the New Zealand History Podcast Channel, where you will find talks on Aotearoa New Zealand history, culture and society. These talks are co-hosted by Manatū Taonga and Te Puna Matauranga o Aotearoa, the National Library of New Zealand, and are recorded live at the library each month. Tēnā koutou katoa, talo falava, malo elele kia orana, malo ni, whakatalofa atu, whakaualofa lahi atu, nisa bulavanaka, noa ia Māori and warm greetings to you all. And I'm delighted today to, um, to introduce Dr Malani Anai, Associate Professor of Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland, who has recently published the book The Platform which recalls the radical activism of the Polynesian Panthers and the group's platform of peaceful, peaceful resistance, Pacific empowerment, and educating New Zealanders about persistent and systematic racism. Now, we'd um, arranged this talk some time ago, um, but since then, the timing has become even more fitting because, as I'm sure all of you know, last Sunday in Auckland, um, the Prime Minister formally apologised on behalf of the New Zealand government for the unjust discriminatory immigration policies and practices that targeted Pacific communities in the 1970s, which we know as the Dawn Raids. Um, I was privileged to be able to attend that really powerful event on Sunday, um, and with my team at Manatū Taonga, Ministry for Culture and Heritage, to have been working with the Ministry for Pacific Peoples on the apology process for the last six months or so. Um, and we are looking forward now to continuing um, to support the collection of um, community stories and the development of historical resources over the next year or two. Uh, Melanie was there on Sunday, of course, um, supporting um, Alec Toliafor, um, who is here today, um, who spoke very impressively um, on behalf of the Polynesian Panthers, a group which not only played a really major role in opposing the Dawn Raids, but also in campaigning for the apology. Um, so I'm really, really delighted to have uh, Melanie here to talk to us, and would now like to invite her to come up to the stage. and warm Pacific greetings. First of all, let me say how honoured I and fellow Panther Alec Toliafor, who will be coming um, front centre stage during the Q&A section, uh, to be here, to have been invited here. Um, I'm also especially honoured to have BWB Books teams here. They are responsible for this little book. This little book, The Platform, uh, The Radical History of the Polynesian Panthers, a little book but power-packed with the steel ink, my malu, my life, and my journey with the Panthers and as one of them. Fifty years ago, a bunch of Polynesian teenagers met in a house in Greylin, Auckland, and formed an authentic, homegrown, revolutionary organisation which fought for human rights. Since that time, books, articles, documentaries, and more recently, social media have articulated the history and philosophy of the Polynesian Panther Party. There is even a TV series, The Panthers, uh, I don't know if you've seen the trailer, coming up in a couple of weeks. It is, of course, though, a faction 
Part fact, part fiction, um, and that is why we've appreciated the insistence of TVNZ in the release of several podcasts prior to the series being released. Uh, a very good six-hour-long podcast of um, the, our story. But important work needs to be done to improve public understanding of our continuing philosophy, to encourage closer examination of our platform and the programs that we develop and are still implementing. Among the many myths about the Polynesian Panthers is that it lasted for a relatively short time and that it disbanded after support waned. While there's been much interest in and focus on the crucible years of the early 1970s, the party was long into active, still into the 80s, and is certainly not defunct. Our mantra is, once a panther, always a panther. And boy, do I know what that means now, after 50 years. Um, as panthers, we knew that the strongest form of protest was to be successful. I didn't really understand that fully until I looked back at the last 50 years and at what we have accomplished and realized that the platform was the inspiration behind the success that we panthers achieved. The power of the platform lies in its potent mixture of inter-ethnic activism in Palangi spaces to annihilate racism and intra-ethnic activism in Pacific spaces to elucidate why cultural non-conformity was necessary and also to celebrate our ethnic identities however we define them. The, the fire burning in our bellies about the empowerment that this Panther platform can create remains as strong now as it was for us back in our teens. And it can never be extinguished. Many Panther members remain actively committed to the platform. They continue to share an intense drive to help Pacific Island youth realise their full potential by drawing on their Pacific heritage and developing their professional skills as New Zealanders. For some, uh, university education added intellectual breadth to our perspectives on racism, inequality, feminism and the gay rights movement and demonstrated how knowledge could lead to political and social empowerment. Knowledge is power. For me, it also provided a context within which to explore and then understand the subordinate status of Pacific peoples in New Zealand society and to expose systemic racism in education. Alec Tuliafor, Panther member, joined the Panthers at the age of 16. He is now a Presbyterian minister. He has been involved in the care of people in urban street communities, prisons, youth and adult custodial and residential settings, and in developing youth leadership and personal development skills learning. Alex's brother Wayne Tuliafor was the Polynesian Panther Minister of Information because he was a university student. <laughs> he joined uh, the Panthers at the age of 17. He went on to become a police officer, then a Presbyterian minister. He became principal chaplain of the Royal New Zealand Defence Force and is now the minister of St Columba Presbyterian Church in Havelock North. Tingilao Ness was the Panther Minister of Culture and Fine Arts because he could draw and play the guitar. <laughs> he, 
He joined at the age of 16. His activism is reflected through his music. His award of win winning from a music career in 2009 when he was presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award and the, at the 5th Pacific Music Awards in New Zealand. And in 2016, he won the Vodafone New Zealand Music Awards Roots Reggae Award. He continues to give back to the community with his lead role in the Mellow Dads program and his role as an assessor for Creative New Zealand grants and many Panther App sessions. As for myself, Panther member of the University Intelligentsia. <laughs> I was a, a group of sisters who were first year university students. I joined at the age of 17. I have been bestowed with many honours uh, as uh, the bio has it, Associate Professor, Fulbright Scholar, member of the QSO, um, Queen Service Award Officer Award, Marsden Award. But what gives me great pride is that, as well as that, I've also been bestowed the Samoan chiefly titles of Lupi Matasila from Falelatai and Misa Tauveve from Siumu, my parents' villages in Samoa. Along with these honours, um, however, I am most proud of the consciousness raising and revolutionary impact I have made on the lives of hundreds of my university students over the last 20 years and the thousands of young New Zealanders in schools through the Polynesian Panthers RAP program, Educate to Liberate. In our active and latent phases, both overtly and indirectly, the Panthers have worked hard for basic human rights. In the 70s, our efforts were a catalyst for political change, prompting successive governments not only to recognise the burgeoning Pacific population, but also to exercise its duty of care. As Panthers, we developed community survival programmes and shone the light on a monocultural system which didn't give a damn for the needs of Pacific people. And I don't think they still do, but he's hoping. As Panthers, we developed the yeah, community survival programs and our achievements were acknowledged by our own Pacific Island communities, by the New Zealand government, and by the Black Panther Party in the United States. Um, so, you know, some people call us revolutionaries, some people call us activists. Um, our parents used to call us moipi, as Alex said on Sunday, which means bedwetters. Um, and that's, but we were just kids. But, you know, the, we were really um, intent on making change for our communities. We saw how our parents slaved their guts out six days a week in the factories in Greylin. We, I never got to speak to my dad except on Sundays when we went to church. That's how we, we just didn't have time with our parents. So um, we, we became their voice. Um, but let's go back to the crucible years, and it's important because I've read stuff out there that says, you know, the dawn raids happened, um, and that's what, you know, um, why the Panthers sprang into action. No, well, that's not true. We had already three years uh, of setting up our community survival programs, um, our homework centres, uh, the pig patrol, um, the TAB, um, um, Program. So we were already uh, active before the dawn raids happened. Um, I read from the book, the inaugural meeting, 
On a cold night, 16th of June, 1971, I snuck out of the family home to attend the meeting. The sight of these guys with afros, black leather jackets and LA island patterned shirts was mesmerising. I wondered what was going on. Then the leaders spoke of forming a, a politicised group called the Polynesian Panther Movement, modelled on the Black Panther Party in the United States. Their charismatic styles and revolutionary talk were riveting. They talked about using passive resistance to fight back against exploitation and racism by the police, by the system, by unscrupulous landlords, by the teachers and the education system. All of us knew what they were talking about at that meeting. We knew and had suffered the everyday racism. It was there at school, at the shops, when walking down Ponsonby Road or playing sport. It was there in the government departments attuned to the needs of Bailangi only. It was there when we went home to a house with rats running around or leaky pipes the landlord wouldn't fix. It was there every day of our lives. I can do this, I remember thinking, yes. Joining this movement would give me a chance to fight back against the injustices that I and all of our families were suffering from. The community activities um, the leaders were talking about would fill the gaps in a monocultural system which didn't care about or cater for Pacific people's needs. I was sold. The movement's rules were simple but strict. No possession of narcotics or being under the influence of alcohol during movement time. No possession of guns, weapons or harmful devices. No using the name of the movement in public for self-glory. And there was equality between men and women. Read Seize the Time by Bobby Seale. This formal structure and political thinking were new to me. I felt comfortable with it though. Although most of the guys there were ex-gang members, the rules about no drugs, weapons, alcohol made me feel safe. The movement's base in Pacific culture and worldviews was also comforting, as was the goal of equality between the sexes. So the period from 71 to 74 um, is what I call the crucible years. It was that time when I was active, uh, when most of the Panthers were active. Uh, it seemed in 1973, 1974, we all, I suppose, tried to grow up and become adults and went to had, had our lives. Some people were working out, what am I going to be? Uh, some of us felt pregnant and had to start uh, being mothers. Uh, that kind of thing. So we kind of gradually, but there was the core, Tingilau Ness and Amarohihi Ness, um, who were frontline and represented the Panthers, that, the Springbok tour, the, the, the land marches. So we were still, you know, um, there in spirit with our brothers who were being active and frontliners. Um, it was a period when the Polynesian Party were outspoken and, and visible, even if the brothers particularly found it hard to shake the gang image. Even now when we speak to family members, they still, when they hear Polynesian Panthers, think gang. And it's been really hard to break that. I mean, gangs don't set up homework centres or old, visit old folks' homes and give concerts and things. So, you know, um, that's interesting. Um, but the grassroots programme and activities um, illustrates our focus on community welfare as a survival strategy. And I, I 
put that down to my, I was the first one to make contact with the Black Panthers Party um, in 1972. First year at university, passed all my units, and as um, Samoan parents do, they like to shout their children <laughs> to put trips to see uh, their families and uh, other countries if they pass their exams. So I was um, off to America, Cerritos, Los Angeles, to visit my auntie and uncle who lived there. Um, but before I left, I got the message from the leadership that I had to make contact with the Black Panthers. Oh my God, that spoilt my whole holiday, didn't it? <laughs> I was just terrified. I mean, me, 17-year-old good Samoan girl <laughs> from Greyland going to meet the Panthers. Um, anyway, this long story short, I left it till the end of uh, my holiday. I couldn't uh, tell my auntie and uncle or my cousins what my mission was. Um, so, I, you know, and that's why I'm an associate professor. I guess I'm very resourceful. I looked them up in the telephone book <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, bring the, the headquarters up and I mean, had this wonderful conversation um, trying to explain where New Zealand was <laughs> and where the Pacific and Samoa were. So, um, but in the end, a week after I got back um, to New Zealand, a box of resources arrived from the Black Panthers. Um, about community programs, uh, food co-ops and things like that. So um, one of our leaders took that box uh, to uh, Sydney where the Aboriginals were trying to set up an embassy. And um, so that was the kind of intercommunalism uh, that the Black, pa Black Panthers were really um, trying to, to, to build at that time. And um, that's my little, you know, claim to fame. <laughs> was um, and and we've kept up that contact with the Black Panthers to this day. Emery Douglas has been here on several occasions. Um, Tinglau Ness and other Panthers went to the 50th anniversary. So you've got to remember they started five years before us, but they were our age as well. They were in their 17 and 18 year old when they set their party up. So they were five years before us. Um, and so this is some of our programs that we ran. Um, legal Aid, the Legal Aid booklet with the help of David Longy, who was our solicitor. And, you know, the policemen got really uptight about uh, these young upstarts who knew their legal rights. And they would say, OK, you're misinforming the public. Take me to who put this booklet together. And we said, well, you better go and see David Longy. Um, who helped us set the book up. But it was so empowering. You know, it was little things, like, again, kitty things, like, an officer can't arrest you if he's not wearing his hat. You know, um, an officer can't arrest you if, you if he hasn't got his, you know, numbers visible. Little things like that, but those little things ended up to be big things in terms of how they made us confident um, and safe, safer, and stopped that brutality that was going on. So those uh, were, uh, you know, snapshot of our um, community programs. Um, the collaborations we had, we couldn't have done what we did without uh, our um, relationships with um, the all all these parties. Seeing Natamatoa, um, People's Union, Holtor Racist Tours, Care. And people often say, how, how come you worked together so well? I said, well, because we all had the common beast, which was racism. That's what 
drew us together and helped us to be a force to be reckoned with. And probably that's the problem with a lot of the, the protest groups today, they're fragmented and there's nothing that uh, they're working on to unify uh, in terms of what they're trying to achieve. Um, and the Polynesian Party Panther legacy are those things. It's, it's, it's consciousness raising. We had to conscientise three sets of people in our teens. One was tangata whenua. So that we built up the relationships with Ngā and even before that. And the other group was the, main, the dominant um, Palangi group. And then it was our own elders, our own parents didn't understand why we were being so, you know, bolshy and radical. They just wanted us to be good citizens like they were because they had tremendous respect for authority. It's in our cultures. Um, we were visitors, so, you know, you have to respect law and order and everything. Um, and then the dawn raids. The Dawn Raids, uh, there's been so much out there about it, but there were two waves of these terrorist attacks, state-sanctioned racism, based on, on, on laws which allowed those things to happen. Um, but more insidious than the Dawn Raids were actually the random checks. The random checks that we've got since the apology was announced, there's been a floodgate opened with people coming out with these stories about the random checks, about the dawn raids. Um, and so uh, the 1974 um, dawn raids happening were under the Labour government, um, and the 1976 dawn raids was under the uh, Muldoon, used law and order and crime um, as his platform when um, they, they took power. What did the Panthers do? I'll read, I'll read from the book there. At 3 a.m. on a cold, foggy night in June 1976, three groups of Panthers and some Palangi supporters. We had to have Palangi supporters because none of us had cars. We were only fit, no, not even driver's licenses. Um, so that's where this unity, this unified platform um, of protest was so good. So we'd hop into our Palangi mates' cars. Um, well, these guys did, and the military wing. Uh, and they simultaneously dawn raided three national politicians' houses <laughs> in upmarket streets in Epsom, Pakuranga and North Shore in Auckland. A small group, including Tingilau Ness and others, went to the home of Franklin MP Bill Birch. Um, the reverse dawn raids also occurred at the homes of MPs North Shore, George Gere, and the Minister of Immigration, Frank Gill. When Air Commodore Gill was interviewed on the radio the next day about the incident, he said, how dare these people come into us at such an ungodly hour? <laughs> but that was the whole point, wasn't it? The Panthers further responded to the dawn raids by scaling up our pig patrols. We probably, if the, if the research was done, there were less um, police, um, you know, uh, putting our people in... in, in, in prisons that occurred during the pig patrols because they were so busy trying to escape our cars, you know, trying to do the right thing. And so, kid stuff. But it wasn't only New Zealand's national identity as a multiracial society that was being forged around the country during this period um, and within the, the, party, uh, the party itself. It was also our own identities as first-generation New Zealand-born Pacific people. We were the first of the first. 
the first New Zealand-born generations from the, our migrant settler parents in the 1950s, there were no role models. Our parents expected us to turn out like them, but we were, had been born here. Um, and, you know, we, we had no role models, so we had to, to create that ourselves. Um, our, our Pacific parents weren't keen on their teenage children fighting back against discrimination. They had a fundamental cultural conviction that we were um, visitors in the land. Um, and so that view has continued today. Uh, the apology. Now, you, I will be privileged in this room to, this is the whakapapa of the apology, okay? This is how the apology happened. We've been fighting that for that for 50 years in our own way, the Panthers. But two years ago, um, on uh, the, what was the project, TV3's program, The Project, there was a little show on um, uh, Pauline Smith's Dawn Ray book, um, and I was being interviewed about the Panthers. And Mark Richardson was on the panel. And towards the end of the show, he says, I think it's about time there was an apology, regardless of which government is in power. And he said, and I hope the national pe uh, the people don't drop the wine on the carpet. <laughs> at, at him, you know, being so brave enough to say that. And so he was the first one to mention that. And then that kind of kind of bubbled up with us and we decided, um, yeah. And when we were going around to the schools, even the, the, the school children were asking us, has there been an apology? And we would say, well, no, not really. So there was a groundswell of kind of apology speak. And then it came to a head when um, we decided that, yes, we're going to ask for an official apology. And so Liz Craig, who's a List MP um, in Invercargill, uh, Pauline approached her and she took it to the politicians. Next minute, we, the Panthers were asked to visit the Ministry for Pacific Peoples. So um, two years ago, we were in talk, in conversation with the government about the apology. Okay? Um, and then we had that lovely petition from the young Josiah and Benji who, um, after talking with us, said, we want to do something. And so that's what was put into train with their petition. Um, when we walked into the offices of the government, the, the Panthers, calling for an apology, uh, we went into that process with our eyes wide open, uh, especially, yeah, some of us who still had the thing about, you know, the government, the distrust. Um, the government lobbyists seldom get everything they ask for, but our intent was honest and real and fueled by our Panther legacy and love for the people. In its submission we, for healing and restoration, the Panthers were clear about what we wanted, an apology, as well as 100 annual scholarships and the overhaul of the current educational curriculum to include the compulsory teaching of racism, race relations, the dawn raids and Pacific studies and the significance of the Treaty of Waitangi as the cornerstone of harmonious race relations in Aotearoa across all sectors and assessed as achieved standards, not just unit standards um, with appropriate non-history subjects. If what we Panthers 
called for was granted and acted on, it would provide a clear message to all Pacific peoples and communities and to all New Zealanders that the government was ready for a truly liberating education and a world-leading pathway to the best race, rela race relations Kiwi style in the world. And I still believe that. I still believe that um, New Zealand can lead the world. We have in so many other ways. We stopped nuclear ships in our harbours, gave women the first to vote in the world. Um, and we have the best relations, race relations in the world now. It's not 100% you know, um, correct or right and it's working, but it, we're still screeds above other countries in the world. And it's something that makes me very proud. And if we could just take it to this next step, wow, what a world it would be. But alas, the apology delivered was a watered down version of what the Panthers called for. By perpetuating a myopic view of our long-term educational needs, the short-term gestures, as they were called, will not be enough to grow a truly liberated and informed youthful leadership for the future. All our kids need to know about this, these things so they can make their own informed decisions about life. And they need to know about the ideas which led to the dawn raids. The colonial, you know, what I call in my university students, I say, you know, white supremacism is, um, uses the processes of colonialism, the three C's, colonialism, Christianity, and capitalism. They need to know what those ideas are and how they have formed the situation, the unjust um, situations that we're in. Okay, so um, what we were given in this apology did little to, to dismantle systemic racism. Much more work needs to be done to decolonize and re-indigenize our education system. Um, if the changes the, the Panthers have fought for over the last 50 years don't materialize, then we will have no alternative but to, as Māori scholar and activist Ranginua Walker says, we still have to keep fighting. That's it. <laughs> but now, I would like to welcome my fellow Panther, Reverend Alec Tolia Ford. And we will be very happy. This is the best part of the talks, is, is having a talanoa with you all. And I'm trying to answer the questions that you have, so. Where was the house in Greylin? <laughs> Keppel Street. Keppel Street, you know Newton? It was um, a few do uh, doors from our house, which was uh, number four Home Street in Greylin. And one of the co-founders of the Panthers, who was an ex-NIGS gang member, um, lived at uh, Keppel Street. And, and um, his parents were away, and so he said, let's, let's have this meeting. <laughs> and then when, you know, they came back earlier, and we just, wow, skedaddle, jumped out the windows, out of there. <laughs> yes. Uh, it would have been a quite exciting time in terms of women's liberation mm. issues. Could you talk a little bit more about the how women's liberation and feminism mm. kind of impacted on the Panthers? Yeah, great question. Um, when we had to read Seize the Time by Bobby Seale, it talked about the black sisters. There's a chapter there that's about the black sisters. And when I read it, I said, oh, that's not what Samoan <laughs> women are like. Our, our, our Samoan matriarchs rule the family like the men 
I mean, my dad gave his pay packet to mum every every pay payday. She was uh, the, the head of the household. You know, everyone here who's got a, a Samoan matriarch knows what I mean. And so I just totally, and that's what really um, pointed out to me the difference. That's why we called ourselves the Polynesian Panthers because. Um, they came from a different socio-historical context to us. So um, I've never considered myself a feminist um, because I love men too much, <laughs> especially my dad. <laughs> and so, you know, it was like more... Um, and I'm, I'm studying this now and I've published on it. Uh, it's a thing that's called womanism. I, I, I like the womanism kind of thing, which was uh, started with the black women in America. Um, but because that talks about uh, complementary relationships with um, the, the males, not in them and us. And it also has the notion of spirituality uh, in part of the womanism. And that's what I think is a, a Pacific trait as well. So I've published on that. If people want to know, I'll give you the reference. Well, one of the important uh, cultural references that we have is this thing called whianga. And the, the strongest relationship within the Samoan culture is between the brother and the sister. Uh, and there's just this, it's a sacred relationship and an ancient one uh, where the brother is pretty much the servant to his sister. Um, and so there's already that uh, disposition, so to, so to speak, uh, of, of a male attitude to women. This is, of course, pre-missionary times. And then when the missionaries came, they, the, the, the nature of the whianganga changed. Uh, and so now that's been pretty much decimated uh, and, and put in another context than, from, than the original context. So the veneration and the respect for the sister has now been taken by these strangers and imposed and placed in the Christian context where now the whianganga is given to the Christian God and to the Christian servants of God to the point now where uh, ministers of religion are referred to as a whianganga fool, the new whianganga. But there are still... Thankfully, practitioners of Whinganga still out there, and that's being rediscovered and reindigenized, and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and it operated in the Panthers. Like you know, we knew the boys would have our backs if we were in danger or protesting, and we always had the boys' back when they got really angry and wanted to, you know, fight. We'd say, "Well, how about a petition? Let's do a petition." <laughs> you know, and so we would had all the. Everything covered, you know, our group. And there was tremendous respect for each other, and that's why we got things done. And, um, yeah, so... But the sisters were the backbone of the Polynesian Panthers. Don't get me wrong. They were there then and now. Even today, you've got um, the sister Pauline and her books. You've got my books, and we kind of coordinate our Educate to Liberate program in the school. So nothing much has changed over 50 years in terms of the gender relationship in the Panthers. 
Um, really good to see you, Melania and Rev again. Um, just really want to, Rev, if you could just share with us that special relationship we have with the Tangata Whenua. So you've mentioned Bastion Point and, and some of the other protests, but you shared with MSD around that special relationship. If you could share that with everyone else, because I think that's a really powerful story in itself. Thank you. Okay, well, um, well, my name is, well, as you know, Alec Toleo Four, but my uh, grandmother is Mietuai uh, Tamasese, who is the older sibling of Tamasese uh, Lelofiwa Anna III, who was shot and then later died of his wounds um, by the New Zealand Armed Constabulary. An apology has been given already for that. So it seems to run in the family, <laughs> asking for apologies. Um, anyway, the, the story goes that uh, and this is a story that circulated in my family ever since. Uh, and he, Tamsesti de Lofi III, he was the head of the Mao, which was a peaceful resistance movement in Samoa against the New Zealand administration and the imposition of its uh, rather oppressive laws, uh, etc. Colonial Samoa. Uh, and he was... Uh, exiled to New Zealand and imprisoned and mounted in jail. I guess the, the equivalent here would be Mount Crawford, one of the oldest jails here. And it was an old, already an old jail in, 19, in the 1920s when he was exiled here. The offence for which he was uh, imprisoned was his failure to move a hedge on his own land to comply with the governor's or the New Zealand administration's uh, uh, program of reorganising the villages so that they were more along the lines of, a, of an English village and they were ordered uh, according to that plan. So he refused to move his hedge, his hedge on his own land. And that was just what the, what the admin needed to have him removed, arrested. So he ended up in Mount Eden Prison. He was there for two years. But while he was there, he was visited by Maui Pōmare. And they began a relationship with Stuhl, and, and they made arrangements that still we honour today in our own family. Uh, if you can imagine, Tamasese, he would have been one of the first Samoans uh, here to New Zealand and certainly one of the first Samoan political prisoners to be in a New Zealand jail. But he was treated as a criminal. So Maui Pōmari, who was from a high-born family himself, he, un he understood this. So he went to see Tamasese while he was in Mount Eden. He took books and food and clothing to him. Uh, and Tamasese was pretty much taken out of his, out of the things that he was familiar with, away from the food, away from his people. He was also stripped of his titles. And there are four royal titles and four royal titles in Samoa, and his, he, is one of, he holds one of them. Uh, so Maui Pumari understood that, and he went to pay homage to him, and that's formed this relationship now. Uh, that is very strong in my family, and whenever the current 
uh, some holder of that title comes to New, comes to Aotearoa, uh, he goes to Huanu uh, Waititi Marae, which is in West Auckland, and that is pretty much the the, um, the 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 place that is home for us is there. Um, a lot of people think that uh, the Polynesian Panthers, um, the our our uh, deference to the Tangata Whenua uh, began with Ngata Matoa, but and and while that did happen, it's it's much older than that. It's much much older than that, uh, much more significant than that. Um, so, w- what Tom Sissi said to Paul Murray was uh, that he and his kin owe Ma- Maui Pumare and his people a great debt. And that from this time, our kin, his kin, me, are going to remember the kindness that was given. And anyone who is Samoan will know them how how significant hospitality is in our culture. So he was extended this great Arohaian hospitality in his time of greatest need. And he never forgot that, neither have we. And it, it's not by accident that there's um, four, five Tamasese members in the Polynesian Panthers. I mean, you know, we didn't kind of think, oh, let's, you know, let's join the Panthers because we're Tamasese. No, <laughs> the, the fight was in them already. The activist kind of, um, yeah, tendency to, to do what's right. Kia ora, thank you for your generosity and sharing your history and your stories with us today. Um, I have a question for Alec. I understand the significance of the Christian church within the Polynesian community. And I'm just wondering about how you situate yourself as a revolutionary within the Christian church. Well, um, there is racism even within the Christian church, despite how much stained glass you want to put around it or how many prayer books there are. It's still racism. Uh, and all of us have, um, we're in the uh, spheres of activity that we have gone into, we have taken our anti-racism uh, doctrine with us, including into the church. One of the things that I'm very, very interested in now is decolonizing the Christian church in Samoa, and, and then by extension through the Pacific. And... Uh, I was giving a talk on um, on that very subject uh, and looking at uh, recovering our own Pacific spirituality. And I, the, I, one of the critics was saying, "But isn't there isn't there just one one God?" And my response was, "Well, you know, if, if you can't hear the voice of your God." through our own cultural references, then you're probably not listening, or else God's not speaking to you, you know, one of those two. So I, I can't see that there's any, any uh, harm or any kind of separation of the two, but I would like for our people to understand that before contact with the missionaries, we had our own spirituality, we had our own deity, our th- own theism, our own understanding of things, and it's not religion; it's spirituality. And this is what I would, this is what I would like to encourage 
Um, and one day, from the pulpit, there might be this invocation to Tangaloa and to the God of the Bible and to the God of the Pacific. That's the invocation I would like to hear from the pulpit. Kia ora. Um, you've mentioned the homework group and uh, Educate to Liberate and um, I'd love if you'd be able to expand on that and kind of touch on the role of education um, within the movement. Um, well, the, it's interesting. That program, the homework centres, was to provide our young Pacific kids a place where they could do their homework. And so uh, a lot of us were university students, so we would help them with their homework at a set time. But one of the lovely stories we heard just the other day when we were giving a Panthers rap at St Cuthbert's um, in Auckland, the principal came down and said, oh, that she was one of the homework tutors back in the day when she was at university. So I can imagine, you know, the activist kind of um, education coming out of St Cuthbert's. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, those sorts of things and uh, the educate to liberate that our parents came to this country for a better education it's since been subsumed by sports and creative things but it's always been education because um, you know knowledge is power even you know indigenous peoples know that as around the world so um, education to me is the kind of um, the coverall for everything else. If you get the education right, there will be peace and harmony. Uh, you know, it's not a us or them, it's not polarizing, it's just knowledge. The sharing of knowledge and being open um, to different worldviews, to be, to be open to different understandings of things. So together you learn new things. Um, and, and so educate to liberate. Um, I've done that in my work as an academic. Um, you know, and it's 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 amazing that the students that have I've had there have gone on to become teachers, and have now introduced Pacific Studies into the curriculum in their schools, um, and and you know that's amazing because that's as Panthers, that's where the revolution lies, that's the revolution is is changing the mindset of everyone that hears our story, that hears our histories. Of our, of our realities. And so I'm just sitting back. I mean, the apology is the apology, but I, don't know, I know that out there, our young, our youth uh, are demanding. We're getting, we're getting stories from, uh, questions from young kids saying, I want to be an activist. How can I be an activist? And the brothers will usually say, oh, well, you have to tidy up your room when your mum says so. <laughs> <laughs> That's true because it teaches you discipline and respect. It's, it's all those things. So, you know, th that's the kind of thing. As us, and we tell them, if you look at our platform, annihilate all forms of racism, celebrate your ethnic identity, whatever it is, and educate to liberate, then you are Panthers. And, and so it's not just an education about, you know, um, a subject, it's, it's your life, it's, it's educating your whole approach to life and people and relationships. Because in the Samoan um, culture, va, the va is crucial. The va is the social and sacred spaces of relationships. 
You know, you can't have one by itself. They both interact to make optimal outcomes. Things work. You get things done when you look after the VAR, the relationship. And the, relation, the VAR between those above, beside, and below you. And that's why someone's are so schizophrenic. <laughs> They're going to have to know what all these VARs are. But we're taught from a very young age <coughs> about these different VAR. And it's in what I call, you know, the um, instructional ad hoc framework. It's do this, do this, don't do that, without any explanation. <laughs> <laughs> and we learn. So that's how we learn. We learn how to behave properly in all those VARs. It's amazing, but that's, that's our fasar more for you. You've given us a tremendous reminder of the importance of civil disobedience mm. in, in New Zealand, in our society. And I wonder, given that if, if there's one really critical thing about discrimination is it's the worst thing is where we don't want to know, we don't want to look. And I wonder, as a consequence of, of the value of civil disobedience, what has it been complemented by in how our systems operate that shed light on the things that, that you've expressed that are so dear and important to New Zealand? And, and, and mm. Okay, one of, the, one of the first, the first uh, activist things, I suppose you would say, uh, in our community, and we're only 16, 17-year-olds, was installing um, uh, traffic lights in pedestrian crossings in a very dangerous intersection in Ponsonby. And that's because a lot of our people were being injured and there was no safe way to cross the, or safer way to cross the road. So what we did was we just formed this continuous line and just marched around there, um, this intersection, so that no cars could come through. And that was just continuous. We weren't breaking the law, but it was being... In, Doing, it's being annoying, really. <laughs> and then traffic started to build up on either side of the intersection, and they were being annoyed as well at what we were doing. But we were very clear on what we wanted. We wanted traffic lights here. So three weeks after that, the City Council put traffic lights there. So that's the influence of so civil disobedience on law and law change, how it happens. You can do that. Um, and it's, I think it's in my blood, really. Uh, the Mao and Samoa, they did a lot of civil disobedience as well and gained their independence as a result. Um, so, you know, these are the ways that uh, we, we, the relationship between civil disobedience and the sorts of things that can happen as a result. And it does remind the people of their own power. You have power and let's just use that. And we use it at times when um, there is some danger to us or to our society or to the well-being of our society. So there's all these different dynamics that are spring from civil uh, disobedience and actually give rise to civil disobedience as well. Uh, just down there in the foyer of this building, I see photos of the 1980s Springbok tour that's the ultimate in, in this country, anyway, of civil disobedience. And uh, the amazing global effects of that action. Amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's one good example of where um, we annihil annihilated racism together. Was the apartheid, you know, the Springbok tour. Um, then we've got one last question. Hi. Um, so you talked a bit about how young people can have a difference in education. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on some of the newer movements around climate change, specifically School Strike for Climate and the need for more um, Pacific views and activism groups in that sort of arena. We were talking about that just earlier. Um, in that same vein about the question about how can I become an activist, right? Um, um, you have to be ready to give, lay down your life for the cause. You have to be passionate. You have to have lived that experience of what you are you know, trying to change. So unless you're, you're in the Pacific and suffering climate change in a big way, it's difficult, you know, to... to to make, I mean, every young person is really on this bandwagon about climate change and without really understanding the, the you know, the, the intricacies of what that means because, um, yeah, what I'm not hearing is what uh, the people back in the islands, in the, the places, you know, the islands that are sinking, I, I don't hear their voices. I don't hear them jumping up and down and being activists about it because they've lived with it for thousands of years. They, they, they have lived through hurricanes and typhoons and, and survived. So, you know, I think it's people who have caused the climate change <laughs> that are now worrying about it. Um. At, at, a, at a more local, local level, we, we encourage uh, young people, you know, to take up... Uh, something that they feel strongly about and, and use their own agency for change. In Tamaki, there's just a, um, there's a group of school, school children who were tired of intra-school violence. And so working against the advice of their school, they still created this march against anti-school violence, intra-school violence. It never made the media, which is typical of how tr youth are treated in the media, um, but they still got up there and, you know, they empowered their community and themselves and found their voice and their, and their legs and went out there and did it. Um, and so I guess there's a lot of these uh, youth movement, new youth activist movements that are um, growing uh, that we don't hear much about. <laughs> Because mainly they youth and the media um, seems to want to get onto this um, sensationalist narr narrative and not care too much about, and we experience that ourselves in, as young Panthers. Um, so I, I would, if you, I would encourage that uh, you know the new youth movements because it's, they're finding their own agency, they're finding their feet, and oh, I'm all for that. I'm all for that. Yeah. And, you know, we, we tell them, if you see racism, stand up. If you feel racism, stand up. Thanks for listening to this New Zealand history podcast from Manatu Taonga. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you're looking for other content about New Zealand history, check out earlier talks in the series. You can find them on your favourite podcast channels. Just search for New Zealand history. Mā te wā.